could be, a, you know, but now the anointing is fixed. Mic check, one, two, one, two. Yeah, all right. He does. I'm just going to set this right here, if I may. Um, it's good. To, it's good to be here. It's it's great to see you guys. Uh, given our early technical difficulties, but it's all right. And uh, I'm excited because I grew up at this church. Given the the transitions that we have seen in the past few few more than a few years but I want to thank you for receiving me so graciously this morning my character my spiritual vitality and my growth can be attributed to the many years that I spent here at this church my father is Glenn Mathis my mother is Shirley Mathis my name is Michael Mathis and I grew up in his church for 30 years or I was I was really born into the church and I can't remember the name a long time ago and I sat under the leadership of Pastor Richie uh, during the, my teenage years. He was my youth pastor, and how awesome was that? Or how, it was it, it was a lot. It was a lot of fun to have a six foot seven guy as your youth pastor. You know, we would go to conferences, and everyone would turn their heads. I'm like, that's my youth pastor, and he played for UNLV. What did your youth pastor do? Right? I'm just kidding. And then I had to repent for my <laughs> pride. But anyways, um, it's an honor to speak with you. It's an honor to share the gospel alongside you this morning. We're going to have some fun. We're going to share some stories. I'm going to teach and preach a little bit, and you can shout me down. It's okay. Come on, we're Pentecostals in this place. So uh, you could talk back to me. It's not the church of the chosen frozen. So listen to me, friends. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ came and he died for our sins. Amen. And that in that we have victory and not only do we have victory, but we're able to express the glory of God. We're able to express the joy of God. We're able to express the mercy and the grace of God by Jesus dying for our sins. You and I have an ability to tell others about the victory in our own lives and thus hopefully setting them free from their bondages and their sin through Christ because he is awesome. And it's not within ourselves, but it's within the God himself, but we're able to express that. And so I pray today that you would be encouraged. I pray today that you would walk out of this place knowing and seeing the beauty and the glory of God that you and I, nah, God deserves our worship. Let's pray. Can we do that? Father, thank you. Thank you because you're awesome, and thank you because you're mighty, and thank you because you're great. I pray that you would help us see you for who you are. I pray that you would change our minds, change our hearts, and change our perspectives. And um, we thank you that we have an opportunity just to gather as believers in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick plug, if I may. I was talking to Pastor Richie. I don't know. I don't have the paper any longer. I was talking to Pastor Richie a few months back in our church. I'm from the Champion Center of Las Vegas and I'm a youth pastor out there. I've been doing that for about six or seven years now full time. And our church does a, or we did 
convoy of hope in which we served over 7,000 people. We gave over about um, 2,000 turkeys, gave over 7,000 meals to people, free haircuts, free mammograms, just a huge community event. And I asked Pastor Richie, he said, hey, do you think maybe you and your church would want to get involved? And he said, hey, we'd love to. And so in the foyer or the area, as you walk into the church building, I have some information. It's blue and white, and it's, it's on the table that you have. And so if you want to kind of, if you're interested in that, you can just grab a piece of paper out there. But I know Pastor Richie's going to be talking about that. But it's good to be here this morning. I want to ask you a question that's going to provide context for the conversation this morning, if I may. And it's this. What is it that consumes your thoughts? Is it the possible or the possibility of a promotion at work? Is it an employee maybe that you don't get along with at work? Is it the thoughts of your son or your daughter and the struggles or the problems that they may face? Is it thoughts of your spouse, both good, come on, and bad? Is it retirement in the near future? See, you and I possess, we intrinsically possess basic general needs ranging from physiological to emotional needs to social needs to self-esteem needs to safety needs we have these needs every single one of us but worship and i'm not talking in the christian sense yet but worship exists because there is an acknowledgement of a need that has to be met i'll give you an example why do people worship material possessions? This is why. Do material possessions render some, an amount, like a service to people? Not, not necessarily, but the material possessions, a boost ego, and they fulfill some sort of self-esteem need that all of us have. And so the object of one's affection and the object of one's attention is this. I have really nice cars. I have a really big house. My boat is bigger than yours. I have really nice clothes, right? And these, these material possessions that we acquire in the consummation of all these things, it fulfills a need. It fulfills a self-esteem need. And we all have these needs. But for us as Christians, this is where it's important that our worship is directed towards God. And, and, and this is why. If our spiritual need, meaning that we don't find the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of God that he, he gives and he grants to all believers, if we don't find ourselves in him, then we're going to mask these needs in something else. And that's dangerous. And so the question I want to ask, again, to provide context for this morning is this. Who or what are you worshiping, and has it really given you what your soul desires? I... I don't, I don't like heights. Anybody else? You know, like standing on stage right now is, no, I'm just kidding. It's not a big deal. <laughs> but I don't like heights. And so every time I get on a plane or even when we go to the stratosphere, I really struggle. So even if I'm standing at the, you know, on 108 and the windows are out, I, I, I have to stand here looking out because getting this close, it, it drives me insane. So I don't like heights. And because I don't like heights, it's difficult for me to get on roller coasters, and for some dumb reason, I do it, right? But this is what I do. When I get on the roller coaster, and you know that part where you get strapped in and whatever, and then it starts to go up slowly, and there, that, that dreadful click, 
click, and you go higher, click, and you go higher, click, and you, and I know I'm, this is what I do. I close my eyes. <laughs> I know, you're like, you're soft. I am. I close my eyes because I do not like heights. But what happens is right before the drop, you can kind of feel it, right before the drop is when I open my eyes. But what I miss out on is the experience of the roller coaster because of a fear. And so God offers infinite joy. God offers an abundance of joy and and happiness that's found only in him, but we can miss out if the object of our affection and the object of our attention is directed towards something else and not him. C.S. Lewis writes, and this is what he says, it would seem that our Lord finds that our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. And then he goes on and says, we are far too easily pleased. If you're taking notes, the message, the title of the message is this, the sufficiency of God manifest in worship. And so... Knowing that God is sufficient, knowing that he provides everything that we need is made manifest or made real or tangible in worship. And so I guess we have to break worship down just a little bit. Worship, now in the Christian sense, worship is this. It's a response to what Jesus Christ has already done for us. That's it. I guess in in simple terms, worship is a response to what Jesus Christ has done for us. So in this, when we give of our tithes and we give of our offerings, no one is forcing us to do it. But we do it because we look back 2,000 years ago of a Jesus or a God who gave his son Jesus on the cross for you and I to bear God's wrath. That when we die, we would be brought back to God. First Peter chapter 3 verse 18. So we give as a response to God already giving. Are you tracking with me? This is about to hit home. Watch this. How about when you're at home and your spouse or your husband or your wife, they're working your nerve, if I may. And you're right there and you're about to tell them exactly how you feel. Come on, somebody. And then you look back and you remember the mercy that was shown on the cross for you and I. And you remember that we received a grace that we did not deserve. And because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago, you then bestow mercy upon your spouse who Lord knows they don't deserve it. This, my friends, is worship. It's a response to what Jesus Christ has already done. So in our relationships with our coworkers, in our relationships with our friends and our mother, our father, our daughters, our sons, and the people around us, in everything that we do, there could be, and yes, there should be a worshipful response because it's merely 
Jesus, this is what you did, and because of what you did, this is how I'm going to respond. Let's take a look at John chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, would you open up there with me, please? We're going to look at a story I'm sure you're really familiar with. Now, I, I've been challenging myself when I work out or if I run or cycle or whatever I'm doing. I've been challenging myself lately to to listen to the Bible instead of listening to music. And I really, I've enjoyed that lately. And so we'll just, I'll just throw on a, a book of the Bible, kind of whatever I feel like listening to during my workouts. And it's funny because when you listen to the Bible, there's things you catch because your processing is different. You're not engaged. The, your mind's not engaged um, the way it, w- it would be if we were just reading. And so I was, I got to John chapter 9, or it kind of just looped to John chapter 9. And I'm telling you, I began to laugh as I was listening to the story. And how many of you guys know it's really, really hard to laugh by yourself, right? Have you ever been watching TV and something's funny, but you kind of chuckle because you're kind of by yourself? But if someone else was there, you would probably be laughing hysterically. At least that's the case for me. So when I see something on TV, I'm by myself, you're like, <laughs> but if your wife is there, you're like, <laughs> right? Tracking with me. It's just funnier because you like to experience things. There's joy and I don't know. That's just me. But anyways, I laugh. It's hard to laugh by myself. I still do it, but you just, <laughs> but anyways, I was listening to John chapter nine as I was cycling and I, I started laughing because I thought the it was like a point in the Bible where God just wanted us to laugh. No, not really. But anyways, um, it was a point in the Bible where I said, I can't believe this story is actually happening. And so let me give context. We're going to start in verse 13, but I'll give context to it quite briefly. And it's this. In John chapter 9, Jesus walks by a blind man who's begging. And his disciples ask him, hey, Jesus, was this blind man, whose fault is it? Is it his fault or is it his parents' fault? And see, this is important because back then the rabbis or the Jewish culture, they understood all illnesses as a result of someone's sin. And so if you were blind, if you were had leprosy, if you were handicapped in any way, if, if there was something physically or even mentally wrong with you, the, they equated it to someone's sin. And so there was a man that was blind and he was begging and his disciples asked him, hey, what's the deal? Is it his fault? Like, was he born into sin or is it his parents' fault? And Jesus completely dismisses the notion, almost like he doesn't care when he, he does care. And this is what his response was to his disciples. He's blind so that the works of God or the glory of God would be manifest, Right? And so they're wondering, hey, why is this guy suffering? And Jesus says, ah, so that the glory of God may be manifest. And so Jesus spits in a little bit of mud, puts it on his eyes, then tells the blind man to go, hey, wash off in a pool. And he does so. And all of a sudden, he's able to see. So we have a guy who was blind from the beginning of time or beginning of his time who now has the ability to see because he responded the way that Jesus told him to respond. 
And so in that, it kind of caused a controversy with the surrounding community. And so his friends or the people that were around, it didn't sit well with him. And they're saying, hey, what's the deal? How are you able to see? And this was his response. Some guy named Jesus healed me. And they don't like that. It it doesn't settle well with them. And so what they do is because it doesn't sit well with them is they bring him before the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day. And and, and we'll start here in verse 13. And, And this is what it says. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now, it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. We'll stop right there for a moment. You must note that then doing anything on the Sabbath that required work, there was a limited amount of work that one was able to do. And so Jesus, being a rabbi, heals a man on the Sabbath day is culturally inappropriate. Now, the Jews were okay. If there was an individual in imminent death, if there was an individual in imminent danger, they were allowed to save someone, right? So if someone was going to fall off a cliff on the Sabbath, you would grab them. Hey, don't do that. That was okay. But the blind man being healed does not sit under the category of imminent death or imminent danger. So Jesus, being a rabbi, breaks the code in hills, and they don't like that. And so the man is brought before the Pharisees. And so in verse 15, it says, And the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said, He applied the clay, he's talking about Jesus, and I washed and I see. So therefore, some of the disciples were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And then they asked the man, well, who do you say that Jesus is since he opened your eyes? And he states, though he's a prophet. And so what happened was there was a Pharisees that weren't happy with the act that Jesus did in healing the man. And so some of them are saying, this guy's not from God because he did work on the Sabbath. And the other guys are saying, well, he's doing these miraculous things. And so what really, there's a quick history lesson in that. Guys like Moses, guys like Joshua, I'm sorry, guys like Moses, guys like Elijah, guys like Elisha, these major prophets that performed these miracles, that performed these signs and performed these wonders, they are all seen as prophets and great men of God. And so the Pharisees are divided because some are saying, well, he healed on the Sabbath, that's wrong. And the other ones are saying, well... He's healing people. And if we look back into our history, our forefathers, there's guys that healed people, and we claim that they're from God. So they're a little confused. And so they asked the man, who do you think he is? He says, he's a prophet. Verse 18. Then the Jews did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received a sight until they called his parents the very one who had received a sight and questioned him, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? And then how does he now see? And his parents asked them and said, we know that this is our son and he was born blind, but now he sees. So we do not know who opened his eyes. How about you ask him yourself? Verse 22, his parents said 
because they were, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, and why don't you ask him? So this is what's happening. The blind man was accused. And the blind man was brought before his friends, and his friends didn't accept the testimony. And so they bring him now before the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, and they don't accept his testimony. And then so what they do is bring his parents in, the blind man's parents. And they say, hey, parents, is this your son? Say, this is our son. Was he born blind? He was born blind. Okay, we've got that settled. Not only was he born blind, what do you think about all this? You know what their response is? Why don't you ask him yourself? We don't want, we don't want anything to do with what's going on. And so his parents in the synagogue are now dismissing the notion or dismissing any, they just don't want to be involved because of a fear of what will happen by the Pharisees. So know this, the Pharisees had a lot of influence. The Pharisees had a lot of power. The Pharisees had a lot of prestige, so much so that the parents are standing, not in a court, but they're standing in the synagogue, standing before their son, and they say, we want no part of this. We're not even going to come to his rescue. And they're dismissed. So you can imagine like this man who's number one, considered as a second-class citizen because it tells us in verse 1 and verse 2 that he was a blind man who was begging. His blindness is what caused him to beg, and because he begged, he was considered a second-class citizen. So we have a second-class citizen that's standing in the synagogue before these religious leaders who had probably Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of that memorized from in the top of, from the top. I can't, I can't. They just had it memorized and can quote it. There it is from the top of their memory, from their memory. I, I'm still messing that one up. Anyways, they were smart guys, all right? They were just really smart guys. Hooked on phonics didn't work for me this morning, sorry. But very, very prestigious and smart guys. And so you have a second-class citizen that's standing before them and his own parents dismissed it. Can you imagine how he feels? Like, oh, man, what argument do I have now, right? It's like me arguing with, a guy with a doctorate degree on, I don't know, I couldn't think of something I don't know because I kind of know everything. Psych, just kidding, just kidding. Take that one out of the CD. I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't, I don't. If I, I could tell you about VeggieTales, though. So his parents dismiss him in the synagogue because they were fearful of what might happen to them. Let's read on in verse 24. So a second time, They called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God, because we know that this man is a sinner. So now the Pharisees are saying that Jesus is a sinner. They're publicly saying that Jesus is a sinner. And then he answered the blind man, the old blind man, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know is though I was blind, now I see. And what he's saying is, I don't care about what you have to say because yesterday I was blind and today I'm able to look at every single one of your faces. 
And so he provides a personal defense to the works that Jesus was doing, but yet the Pharisees did not want to accept it because of whatever reasons. And if I can, for a moment, insert a moment of preaching, friends, if you've repented, if you've confessed, if you've believed in the gospel, you have a story to tell. That regardless of what anybody says, if Christ has pulled you out of darkness and into the glorious light, you have a story to tell. There are individuals in this room that have probably worked through some difficulties in their lives. You have a story to tell. For some of us, maybe it wasn't as traumatic or dramatic as we hear about others on TV or whatever, but it doesn't matter because you have a story to tell. And so the man is standing before a bunch of people who are educated and religious and sophisticated and have influence. And he says, I don't care about what you have to say. I was blind, but I'm not anymore. You can't give me the answers to that. It's a personal defense. Let me give you an example. Like two or three years ago, I was at a camp and I was doing a workshop for one of our Foursquare youth district camps. And there was a young lady that came, I, forget, I even forget what the workshop was on, I think it was on prayer or something like that. And there was a young lady who came forward and she wanted prayer. And she said, can you, can you pray for me? I said, of course. She said, you know, I don't, I wasn't into drugs. I wasn't like, you know, into alcohol. I wasn't in the set. I'm not into any of that, but I feel like I'm inadequate because my story isn't as powerful. I said, okay. I said, number one, that's not true but let's pray. So I simply laid my hand on her and I said, Lord, I'll just pray you just speak. Just, just speak to this young lady. And it was this. So we were done praying and I, and I looked at her dead in the eye and I said, here's your story, young lady, is that you're not going to fear anymore. And she broke down, sobbing like the, like the nasty t- tears and snot, the one that you're like, <laughs> right? And you're like, oh, God, what's wrong? What's wrong? You know, like me, I don't do well in those situations. I know I'm a pastor, but I don't. So she's like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I don't know. I'm just kidding. Sorry. Um, but she started crying and, and bawling and, and sobbing just, and I said, that's your story, young lady, is that you're not going to fear anymore. You're not going to fear what people think about you because you believe in Jesus. You're not going to fear about what people will say about you because you believe that the gospel is real. You're not going to fear anymore. And finally, we concluded the prayer time. And she said, this is going to be my story. Never met her again or never saw her again and will probably never see her again. Hopefully, maybe one day. But here's, here's the thing I want to say in that point. If you've believed and repented and confessed in the gospel, you have a story to tell. That if Jesus has done something in your life, your personal defense is almost better than anything else that you could say. We can give a philosophical reasoning, a theological argument, a scientific, a historical argument. And all these are really important, right? First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 tells us to have a, a defense for the gospel. They're important, but you know what can, no one can ever take away is what Jesus has done in your life. Amen? Amen? And so the man gives a personal defense before these educated guys and says, look, I was blind, but I'm not anymore. But then he goes on. Verse 26. And so they say to him. What did he do to you and how did he open your eyes? And this is what the, you almost like sense a frustration that the blind man is now like, come on, guys. And they say, the Pharisees ask him, so what did he do? And what happened? And, and then here's his response. He says, I told you already and you're not listening. Why do you want to hear it again? 
you do not want to become his disciples, do you? And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. For we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. And then the man answers, and this is my second favorite part. The man answers and says, we know that God does not hear sinners, right? So he states to the Pharisees, we know God doesn't hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and he does his will, he will hear him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. And if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in your sins and you're teaching us, get out. And so this is what happens. He then provides a logical defense. First is a personal defense, then it's a logical defense, and it's this. He says, all right, guys, you want to reason with me? I know I don't have your educational background. I, don't, I know I haven't hung out with the scholars, and I know that me, a blind man who was just even dismissed by my own parents, if you want to go to war, I'll give you what I know. And this is what he states. Number one, we know that God does not hear sinners. Right. So the Pharisees, they all agree with that. He says, and along with that, we know that if a man is in sin, God doesn't hear him. But if he's God fearing, does God hear him? They all agree with that. Okay. well, here's point number two. If God hears him and 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 God only hears the one who's righteous, then we know from the beginning of time, God has not done these things that this guy Jesus is doing. No one's no one's opened the eyes of the blind. And so they're. Yeah, okay, we're tracking with you. And then point three, and it's this. He states, well then, if God doesn't hear sinners and he only hears those that fear him, and if God, or if we've seen that things like this have never happened before, then it's really one thing. This guy, Jesus, is from God. And not only is he from God, he has the authority from God to do what he was doing and either you accept it or you don't. And this is their response to them. How are you teaching us? Really, this is what they're thinking. This is what they're saying. How are you teaching us, you low-life beggar, you second-class citizen who you don't, you don't even know what the Bible really says? We've got this thing memorized. How are you teaching us? Get out. And they kick him out, right? You can imagine, like, uh, all right, peace, <laughs> right? I'll, I'll go, and I'll go, I'll go talk to Jesus, it's fine. But it was, what was really happening, happening was that the Pharisees were so blinded by their traditional beliefs, they were so blinded by their preconceived notions or their assumptions that God was going to do this, and he didn't. And so while we have a man who was blind, what it's really reflective of is that it was the Pharisees who were spiritually blind. We have a man who was physically blind, but it was the Pharisees who were spiritually blind. And so analyzing the text, there's two things that I think are important for us given this morning, and it's this. First one is your personal story carries weight. It does. If you've believed, repented, and confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, friends, your personal story carries weight. I'll tell you this. I'm not the same person I was eight years ago that I am today. And it's not because I'm awesome, but because God's awesome. 
Come on, I got an amen. I love that one. Actually, I did. I got a strong amen. But the same is true for all of us. As we move from self and towards God and begin to behold his glory and behold his majesty, things happen in our lives. Analyzing the text, the first point I want to make is that your personal story carries weight. Here's the second thing. Let's not miss out on what God is doing because it's not something that we planned for. And then I'll give you an example. Again, second point is this. Let's not miss out on what God is doing because it's something that we did not plan for. And here's the example I'll give. A man, young man, married, finds out that his wife is pregnant. And so he prays, Father, we're going to need a promotion because this income right now will not supplement little baby. (laughs) And he prays and he prays and he prays and then he's let go from his job to only find a job that pays more than his last one. Do we call that divine providence? Coincidence, right? And so for him, the prayer was, Father, we need a promotion. We need more money to supplement the, the new, this new little baby that I'm going to have to feed. And he's let go into only then to find a job that pays more. So you can get hung up on, I didn't get the promotion, or you can see that God's plan was bigger than his and providing the way that God wanted to provide. And so let us not miss out on, God, on what God is doing because it's not something that we plan for. So going back to what I was originally talking about, the question was, do the things that you worship provide the fulfillment your soul desire? I'll just give you a quick answer. And the answer, it's yeah, only for a moment. Momentary satisfaction or instant gratification. And on top of that, I would like to say that God deserves our worship. Not in a way where he gets half of our hearts, but in a way that he gets all of our hearts. He gets all of our attention. He gets all of our affection. All of it. God deserves our worship. In the sacrificial atoning death of Christ on the cross where sin and death were conquered, through the resurrection and Christ propitiating himself on our behalf, friends, God deserves our worship. In Isaiah chapter 6, I, I, I love this. In Isaiah chapter 6, seraphim are described. And in the Bible, they are described only as this angelic, majestic, Beings of fire. That's it. Angelic, majestic beings of fire. So they're not descriptive on how big they are. But if you can imagine with me a being that's standing before you 20, 30, 40, 50 feet high. And all it is is a flame burning. That's what the seraphim are described in Isaiah chapter 6. So the Bible says that 365 days a year and 24 hours a day that the seraphim are flying around the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So while you and I were taking our naps yesterday or what I like to call beauty sleep, while you and I were sleeping yesterday, these angels were flying around the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of mighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. While you and I were eating dinner, while we were working our jobs yesterday or Friday, and when we go back to our jobs tomorrow, when we go to bed tonight and when we're driving home, these angels are in the throne room of God, flying around the throne room of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of mighty. And this is what the Bible does say as they describe these angels. They have six wings. Two they cover their face with. The other two they fly with. And the other two, they cover their legs and their, and their feet. So these angels are flying around the throne room of God, covering themselves because they can't. These balls of fire, they can't take the glory of God, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of mighty. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. What these guys see, I want to see. And I pray that to be the desire for our hearts that we'd see as well. God deserves our worship, that even in our momentary pain, that even in our momentary affliction, even in our triumphs, our joys, God deserves our worship. There ought to be nothing else in this world that hits the object of our attention and affection more than God. Here's two things I want to leave with you. Uh, you, I already gave you two given the text, but two things I want to leave with you, and it's this. Immeasurable joy is only found in Christ. So we can work really, really hard to be happy. But immeasurable and infinite joy is only found through Christ. That's it. There's, there's no other way to make it happen. We can manufacture our happiness by manipulating situations, but immeasurable, immeasurable joy is only found in Christ. We can buy new things, acquire new things, consume new things. We can do whatever we want, but immeasurable joy is only found in Christ. And then point number two is this. Only God can fulfill the deepest longings of your heart. Nothing else will satisfy by any stretch of imagination. And so when you're at work, or you're at home, and your spouse or your friends or whoever says something to you, and your first response is to lash out in anger, let's go back to the cross. Jesus gave us mercy, so while I don't want to give you mercy, I'm going to give you mercy. <laughs> Only God can fulfill the deepest longings of our heart. And that's the beauty of worship, that as humans, we are not immune from the self-esteem needs. We're not immune from the social needs. We're not immune from the physiological needs. We're not immune from these things. But in the worship of God, it transcends those. And so you and I have an ability to connect with the God of the universe and experience full joy and full happiness in him and I'll tell you what, there's nothing else better than the presence of God. Amen. Would you guys bow your heads with me? Father, thank you that you're awesome and thank you that you're wonderful. Thank you that you're sovereign. I pray that you would help us worship you. I pray that 
in our doubts and in our confusion, in our worries, in our fears, that we would worship you. I pray that even in our triumphs, in our victories, and things going awesome for us, that we would worship you. That, Father, you have a measurable joy for us. But you, would, you ought to be, and I pray that you will be the object of our affection and our attention, and we would worship you. That we would not be blinded like the Pharisees in our own traditions and our own ideas as to what you're going to do. But we're going to see you for who you are. So help us, God, as we progress and as you are sanctifying us. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're in this room. You've never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord or that we use the term interchangeably. You've never given your heart to Jesus or accepted him. And you want to do that for the very first time. No one's looking. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. We just want to give you an opportunity. You've never done that before in your life and say, I want to profess Christ as Lord. I want to give him my life. I want to say that he is, he resurrected on my behalf. We're going to give you opportunity to do that. No one's looking around. If you say, I want to make that decision for the very first time. You've already, if you've already done it, don't worry about it. But I want to make that decision for the very first time in my life. Would you just look right up at me and just make sure I just see you? Anybody at all? All right. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're glorious and sovereign and great. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to a wonderful group of people. And I pray that you would have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, come on, everybody says. All right. Well, thank you. You're too kind. I didn't know how to end service last uh, service, and it was really awkward, but I got it now. You guys have a blessed week. Peace.